another episode of Gladio for Europe. I, I am Russian Sam, not joined this time by Liam, but rest assured, we have a great episode lined up for you guys. Uh, we have our, a good friend of the pod here with us, uh, King Krebs, who, uh, who's a longtime listener, first time caller. And he's going to be bringing some of his expertise to us to talk about a really horrendous topic. That being the Guatemalan syphilis experiments. How's it going, Krebs? Um, it's going well. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, it's a somber topic today. So, um, yeah, I'm just preparing myself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be a very difficult topic. So, so let me just introduce what we're going to be talking about. Uh, this is the Guatemalan uh, syphilis experiment, probably one of the uh, one of the worst examples of medical abuse done by the United States that I've come across so far. And really, that's quite an accomplishment because the history of medicine in the 20th century is full of enormous crimes. Uh, most of us are at least tangentially familiar with some of them. For example, the infamous uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was originally a New Deal project started to study syphilis in 399 rural African-American men in Alabama. Uh, back in those days, in that place, uh, syphilis was grouped together with other conditions like anemia under the moniker of bad blood. So when the Tuskegee study began in 1932, treatments for syphilis were still really primitive and participants were nevertheless left uninformed of their true diagnosis or even that they were infectious. Uh, the neglect uh, really only escalated after the successful mass production of penicillin after the United States century into World War II. Despite the fact that there was now a reliable cure, the subjects of the Tuskegee experiment continued to go untreated. In fact, the researchers behind Tuskegee went to great lengths to keep the subjects in the dark about their diagnosis. When, when conscription began and many of these men were drafted into the armed forces uh, and underwent the prerequisite medical observations, the team went out of their way to conceal the diagnosis from the participants. An experiment to study the pre-antibiotic treatments for syphilis was thus transformed into an observational study, which withheld treatment from patients with the aim of seeing how the disease would progress. The study would continue until 1972, when the whistleblower finally revealed to the world what was going on. And by the end of all of that, of the 399 men who had participated, 28 had died of syphilis, 100 died of related complications. 40, had, 40 wives were infected, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. But Tuskegee was neither the first nor the last syphilis experiment to be undertaken at the time. Some of the experiments conducted contemporaneously had in fact been done abroad on a far greater scale, with the mass infection of, of patients with venereal diseases who had no idea what was being done to them. In fact, some of the figures involved in Tuskegee would continue their work in these foreign contexts, and this work would leave a very dark mark on the medical profession, which continues to linger to this day. At a time when the medical experiments of the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese were coming to the fore, unscrupulous Americans would be conducting experiments which would not look out of place in either of these contexts. Unfortunately, the list of such misconduct is very long. Within the United States itself, domestic populations were deliberately exposed under the framework of MKUltra, to all kinds of awful experiments. Uh, unknowing military personnel were deliberately exposed to high doses of radiation as well, just to name a few examples. 
Meanwhile, in France, around the same time, inhabitants of the small village of Pont-Saint-Esprit were poisoned with ergotism on a mass scale under the rubric of M.K. Naomi. Uh, many people would be hospitalized and seven people would ultimately die because of what was done to them. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, the local populations were subjected to horrific abuses and masterialization by many different actors, among them Cornelius Rhodes, who would later become the director of Sloan Kettering. Rhodes held Puerto Ricans to be subhuman and injected them with live cancer cells, among other things. I, I could go on and on, really, but today we'll be focusing on just one example. As I mentioned at top, we are going to be exploring the history of the Guatemalan syphilis experiments. And to help guide us all through this, because I, I don't really have much medical knowledge, we have, as I mentioned, our good friend, uh, King Krebs, who is a grad student uh, currently working on these kinds of questions. Um, you guys can probably hear from my tone of voice that this is going to be a really heavy one. So uh, normal normal exclaimers here, uh, trigger warning for everything, really. Uh, if you are listening to this with children, I would probably advise you to consider if this is age appropriate for them. Um, and all those caveats being said, let's talk about how this is going to work. The main source for this episode is a report commissioned by the Obama administration titled Ethically Impossible, STD Research in Guatemala from 1946 to 1948, which was issued by the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. We'll return to the report itself in a bit, but let me give you guys a basic summary of what happened. Although, what's, although what happened in Guatemala is generally referred to as a syphilis experiment, other STDs were involved as well, namely gonorrhea and chancroid. The experiments began in Guatemala in July 1946, and the main portion under the direction of Dr. Cutler would conclude in December 1948, although lower profile work would continue until 1951 and samples would continue to be processed as late as 1953. The main phase of the experiment was run primarily by Dr. John Cutler, and it was in this period when the greatest abuses would happen. In brief, according to the aforementioned report, the Guatemalan experiments involved 5,128 subjects, uh, counting those who had pre-existing STD conditions, as well as those ex infected for the experiments. Of these subjects, only 820 of them received some form of treatment, and most of these were the relatively ineffective arsenic and bismuth-derived uh, ointments. Most of the subjects were not aware of what was being done to them, and vulnerable populations were used primarily prisoners, mental health patients, orphans, prostitutes, and soldiers within the Guatemalan military. So before we get into this, uh, let's just set some context. So STDs, uh, what can you tell us about them, Krebs? Um, well, um, their STDs are, uh, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, and, you know, they go back um, from a long time. Um, we have old DNA evidence going back 4,500 years from skeletal remains um, from the bell beaker culture discovered in modern-day Germany. Um, and it's believed that diseases like herpes may have existed in humans and even Neanderthals for a million years. Mm -hmm. uh, so where does syphilis come from exactly? I know that this has been a topic of debate for 
well over a century because some people think that it was a new world disease, one of the few that would have been introduced into the old world from the Americas by Columbus, uh, which should, and this is primarily based on the fact that it first appears in the literature around 1495 under the moniker of French disease, because it was brought into the Italian peninsula by French troops who were intervening in the Italian wars. Uh, so that would seem to suggest that this was a new world disease, but others think that it pre-existed, that there were already wells uh, of the disease in Eurasia. One recent DNA study I came across seems to confirm that uh, the disease was found in Eastern Europe, places like Finland and Poland, uh, which would predate 1495. But the question still isn't totally resolved because from what I could tell, uh, the margin of error for the dating was large enough that these uh, these skeletons might post-date the proposed introduction from the New World. And the advent of syphilis, it was really massive. It, it had a huge effect on European sexual patterns because when we think of uh, the Middle Ages and early modernity, we tend to imagine that uh, that Europeans were all really prudish and that they feared God too much to have sex for pleasure, which is very much not the case, actually. Uh, premarital sex would have been pretty normal, but uh, with the introduction of syphilis, uh, just like the advent of the Black Plague some 150 years before, uh, people became much more cautious. And there really was a great reason to be very cautious. Um, uh, could you maybe give us some idea of what syphilis infection looks like? Um, yeah, for sure. So um, the symptoms, um, you know, eventually um, they can lead to pretty damaging um, neurological conditions. Uh, you know, you, it can lead to like dementia-like symptoms um, over time. And there's like a latent phase too. So, you know, you're not immediately going to be aware uh, of the infection. So it, it, it really is like a silent killer um, in many ways so it's definitely like uh for, for someone you know back then it definitely would feel like uh like you're fated to you know meet a very bad end right and there wasn't really a way to cure it was it um well i, I guess they were i mean they were using arsenic and bismuth derived compounds for a while so but no there there wasn't like a real cure um that that was available for them it was kind of a yeah, it was kind of a bad fate that they just had to face. Yeah, and in fact, the arsenic and bismuth stuff was really the less bad option. For a long time, it seems like mercury was the default treatment, uh, which if anyone knows, if you guys know anything about uh, the side effects of mercury toxicity, it's, uh, it's, it's not great. And the treatment itself was also very unpleasant. Uh, one description I found from the chapter by Beck in a book called Plague, Pox, and Pestilence, Disease and History, describes it as follows, quote, A patient undergoing the treatment was secluded in a hot, stuffy room and rubbed vigorously with a mercury ointment several times a day. The massaging was done near a hot fire, which the sufferer was then left next to in order to sweat. The process went on for a week to a month or more and would later be repeated if the disease persisted. Other toxic, toxic substances, such as vitriol and arsenic, were also employed, but their curative effects were equally in doubt. As one early modern English saying went, 
one night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury, uh, which just goes to show that this was something that weighed on the minds of people back in those days because everyone knew that uh, these Mercury treatments were really, really an awful affair. When did Mercury stop being the default mode of treatment, would you say? I think uh, around 1909, um, or, uh, like around then, um, you see um, different treatments um, coming up uh, based on arsenic. So, yay, um, you're going from mercury to arsenic improvement, you know? Yay, improvement. <laughs> yeah. um, I fucking love science. And uh, apparently was uh, originally synthesized by Paul Ehrlich. Um, sounds like the population bomb guy. <laughs> uh, but only... Uh, it was initially, mm. you know, um, recognized as, you know, working against syphilis. Um, and it, its application was definitely not ideal um, in, in any way. Wait, so when you say it, what are you talking about exactly? Well, it, the arsenic um, solution, it's uh, what's called Salversan. Uh, it was like uh, the Tylenol at the time, for, um, but for STDs. Ah. But it was uh, done um, by mixing with distilled water. Um, and injected into the patient, and it came with its own, you know, terrible side effects. Um, so you'd have to face lie face down. Um, the solversan was melted um, with a small amount of methyl alcohol mixed with some water, some caustic soda, and this acidic in injection was um, then given to, um, you know, the the buttocks, and um, it was extremely painful. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was better than um, the previous era of mercury. Yeah, uh, when I was reading about this stuff, I I read that sometimes uh, uh, the people given these Selversan injections would also have to be given heavy narcotics because they would be in in pain for for the entire course of the treatment. Basically, really awful stinging pain. But uh, compared to mercury, it really was a godsend. Uh, it was much less. Uh, much less toxic naturally, although people did still die from this stuff for the record, but it was really difficult to use and administer. So uh, so because of that, uh, other less effective, but also less inconvenient forms of treatment were uh, being discovered, or I should say discovered in air quotes, because there was no real evidence of efficacy for most of these uh, compounds from 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 what I understand, there was really an impetus to start looking into the stuff with the entry of the U.S. into World War One, because as soon as they got off the boat, uh, American GIs were falling sick left and right uh, from gonorrhea and syphilis, what they called venereal diseases back in those days. And of course, they were getting all this from their contact with prostitutes and not being familiar with the basic sex safety protocol as well. So because of that, uh, military planners began to grow really concerned about what this would mean for future wars, which America would participate in. Uh, to use modern parlance, this was a national security threat. So what was the military doing to try to uh, keep STDs under control at this time? Um, well, they had a thing called a pro kit, and it was a pretty invasive um, procedure um, to inoculate um, the soldiers. And they would have to like first urinate and then wash with soap and water and then directly inject a silver protonate solution um, into the penis to prevent gonorrhea and then rub a calomel um, 
ointment over their penis and pubic region to prevent syphilis. Um, and the, oh my, uh. so calomel is also like a mercury based solution. So, you know, you still have, you know, we're still getting the mercury in. Um, so it, it is extremely terrible. Um, you know, if you, if you want to have a prophylactic procedure, you want it to be as like easy to use and readily available as possible. And this is like the exact opposite. And um, arsenic therapy also required 18 months of consistent treatment. So, you know, you can't randomly like stop treat, um, you know, using um, the treatment and then con continue later on. Uh, it won't be as effective. So it's, it's all uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty terrible um, op options at the time. Right, right. Uh, but the question really got much more resonance with America's entry into World War II. Uh, the NRC subcommittee on venereal diseases had wrote that he expected, quote, approximately 350,000 fresh infections with gonorrhea, which will account for 7 million lost man days per year, the equivalent of putting out of action for a full year the entire strength of two full armored divisions or of 10 aircraft carriers. And so to this end, new experiments were being arranged. The direct precursor to the Guatemalan experiments, which we'll talk about later, in fact, were the Terre Haute uh, prison experiments. What can you tell us about those? As terrible as, um, you know, this experiment was, I would say it's definitely tamer compared to even Tuskegee and, um, you know, the Guatemala um, series of experiments. Um, uh, first of all, this one actually kind of had a foundational idea of what it was intending um, to pursue. And they at least had some level of liability, like uh, they actually had the prisoners, um, you know, agree um, to participate voluntarily, even if that is like it, it is to be it, it is pretty difficult to say that, you know, prisoners weren't coerced, especially in a federal prison at in, in the 40s. Uh, but, you know, compared to the other settings, it seems like there was more individual autonomy, hopefully. Um, and the participants were um, got $100 at the conclusion of the experiment, um, and they got um, a certificate of merit and commendatory letter um, when they were up for parole, but the prisoners weren't told this beforehand. Um, and they were informed of what was going to be done to them and the risks and um, like what treatment they were provided. There were two different treatments. There was a pre-oral antibiotic and a post-infection um, urethral um, topical um, solution. So, um, you know, they were told like what, what they were getting themselves into. And uh, the, the thing, unique thing about this experiment is that a lot of the bureaucrats were pretty, um, I would say they're pretty scared about how the experiment would be taken by the larger public, which is pretty unique for this era, I would say. Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether they should do this or not, or whether they should pursue this. So do you want to go more into the history of how, you know, this was organized? Right, of course. Uh, but first, I just want to consider the ethics here, just because, like, when I was reading about this, maybe this is the result of knowing, uh, in retrospect, what would be done in Guatemala by the same people who, uh, who organized the Terre Haute experiments. But um, it just seems like... Unfortunately, we do need some level of human experimentation because uh, we're not petri dishes, we're not uh, rabbits or mice or whatever kind of uh, 
creatures get used in these studies. Ultimately, you do need to have tests on human subjects to make sure that this stuff actually works and to know like what the proper treatment protocols are. Um, so the fact that these people weren't, uh, were first of all not coerced into this in any way, that they weren't made aware of the fact that there's an incentive for them to participate because if they do, they'll get a nice letter uh, sent to the parole board uh, to hopefully shorten their sentence and things of that nature. But nevertheless, I, I do get the sense that just operating with prisoners is problematic in and of itself. But um, I'd like to hear what you think. Um, I definitely don't think this is uh, anywhere close to an, um, an ethical um, experiment personally. I just don't I just don't see how um, you know prisoners can actually consent um, in most cases really, especially for something as like potentially invasive as this procedure. Um, I just don't see them having a real like substantial way of kind of combating the power imbalance. Um, especially like in a prison environment, um, you know, where they are subject to like pretty totalitarian um, control over, you know, their daily existence. So it, it becomes difficult to what extent can they even consent to a lot of stuff. And given the later history of right. prison experiments in the U.S. that goes on for decades after this and, you know, prison treatment today. And um, I, I just can't, you know, really uh, – support it in, in in any manner but you know even in 2011 there's a new york times article about how this experiment was very ethical right um, you know um new york times you know right yeah amazing <laughs> amazing piece yeah we'll get to that one by the end of the episode maybe yes uh you were telling me that uh the stuff that went into this experiment would later be used to uh create uh, the holmesburg experiments which uh that prison facility was apparently known as the Terror Dome, which really tells you something about what was being done over there. Let's uh, let's talk about this experiment itself, like who was in charge, what were the parameters of what they were actually studying. There was pretty clear intention behind the study. Um, it is to try to, I guess, artificially infect um, a patient or transfer gonorrhea um, in a kind of a clinical setting. Uh, like topically and um, it was kind of started off by a Dr. Carpenter at University of Rochester um, and you know he works with Dr. Moore mm -hmm. of the National Research Council and there's this like huge bureaucratic huddle where they discuss like possible sites um, the National Research Council subcommittee on venereal diseases and um, the New York City Department of Health discuss their ideas and the NRC um, agrees eventually that they should try to go through like a federal program um, so that they have like sound legal backing. Um, so they like go through the army, the public health service, the Committee on Medical Research, um, the OSRD, and they get approval and buy-in from like mm -hmm. all these top, you know, um, organizations like the Public Health Service, National Research Council, the Surgeon General. Um, and Ultimately, they do end up, you know, providing the waivers and the, um, like, recruiting voluntarily. Um, and they also do provide two treatments, um, which included uh, sulfonamide as well as, like, topical agents. Um, at, at this point, sulfonamides were um, 
I guess, like more common or still somewhat more common for um, like uh, for treating uh, gonorrhea. But, you know, later on, eventually penicillin quickly becomes, um, you know, the standard for gonorrhea treatment, too. Um, but, yeah, sulfonamides are still used today. They just have some side effects um, of relating to folic acid processing. So it's like um, you can still use it. Um, you just have to be careful, um, you know, with the doses and the interactions. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, at least it's a real medicine and, you know, not they're not getting some some random metal um, mercury treatment or something. Yeah, and and who are the personalities involved? Um, well, yeah, you have the like president of the AMA, the chairman of the NRC, um, Dr. Arthur Bloomfield, and and initially they were all against it, and it even goes up to Vannevar Bush, who who you'll see a lot in um, I guess like New Deal era like, um, you know, big science, you know, when the federal government is in heavily investing in science and like Manhattan Project and all that, like New Deal era, federal um, military industrial um, science research funding type stuff. Um, and he, he's, I, I would say he's the godfather of like big science in America um, in a way, like, um, you know, the big grant systems that's that were set up. Um, and right. he was initially kind of against it. Um, and he, um, as far as I know, I know I looked this up before. Um, he's not related to the, you know the Bush family. He's just another guy named Bush. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, because you know all these people were hesitant, they were like considering like let's just use like military or federal prisoners because you know it's like a less sympathetic um population. And there was a previous experiment um locally in Oklahoma where they were um testing prophylaxis on um sex workers. And um, it, it was reported in a local newspaper and no one really was outraged by it. So there was like, okay, like what if we, you know, experiment on prisoners, you know, no one's going to care is basically the kind of attitude. Um, and it, it, there is like into the 90s, you know, there is a tradition of American institutions, um, you know, psychiatric or, um, you know, institutions for problematic children and adults, like uh, mm -hmm. just not being the greatest places i mean they still aren't uh, but there this is definitely like in an era um as part of that kind of strain of attitude towards institutions kind of being i guess thought of as disposable um or just not as respected the people there are not as respected um as you know um i guess more upstanding um upper class citizens were right of course so let's talk about the Terre Haute experiments themselves. Uh, there were ultimately 241 participants, and uh, but the experiments ultimately, from what I understand, had to be cut short because they weren't able to consistently cause infection in the test subjects. And this caused the study to be shuttered in July 1944, after only 10 months, I believe. Yeah, um, so there were like... Uh, trying to apply, um, I guess, like possum, um, colonies harvested um, from other strains and, you know, directly um, implanted on the uh, on the penises of um, different uh, of prisoners, participants, but it kind of ended up never working um, and they just weren't able to create like in the human model of transmission in a controlled setting um, like that. Um, and interestingly, at least some of the strains were from locally arrested sex workers. Um, 
So you don't like then there's no mention if they were like, okay, they consented to this or if they, you know, if they got paid or if like, you know, they were asked um, permission, like none of that is uh, available. So um, yeah, it, it, it kind of ended in failure, uh, but at least it showed that, you know, gonorrhea isn't just, it, it's not as easy to spread gonorrhea um, as they thought it was. Right. Okay. Yeah, so let's step back a little bit and talk about penicillin because uh, because before the Terre Haute experiments were even beginning, penicillin was starting to hit the production lines. Uh, what's penicillin exactly and why was it so important? Well, um, penicillin is a compound that kind of comes that comes from a fungus and it was discovered by accident. Mm -hmm. And it kind of it basically destroys the cell walls of um, bacteria. Um, it, it falls under a beta-lactam um, grouping of antibiotics. Um, yeah, uh, and it, it it has a broad spectrum coverage of a lot of different bacteria. Um, but again, like recently, we have more specific, um, more specific antibiotics that we use for different um, diseases like. Um, gonorrhea like uh, most commonly for gram negative you would use like um ceftriazone or something like that but not now but at, at the time like penicillin is still like you know kind of like a miracle drug right yeah we kind of screwed the pooch by using penicillin too much so a bunch of infections ended up becoming resistant to it uh, but yes from from what i understand uh it's uh, the name is derived from a type of fungus called penicillium and again this was discovered entirely accidentally uh, Dr. Fleming, uh, he was working on some some other uh, experiments with substances which would uh, kill bacteria. And as I heard the story, uh, he he didn't uh, close a window one day, and so he uh, he he went out for the night, and he had some petri dishes lying on the counter. And when he returned the following morning, he noticed that in in some of the petri dishes, uh, like there were blotches where there were no bacteria growing at all. That uh, that there was something uh, that was being brought in by the wind into uh, into the office into these petri dishes, which uh, totally by accident would change the history of medicine. Yeah, talk about an eureka moment, like uh, just like a like most drugs, I would say, like you you take something that you know you find naturally, or some something happens, and then you find something that works, and then you like kind of refine it and um, you know extract it and study it, and uh, yeah, penicillin uh, is one such story. Right. Yes. So the uses of penicillin were being explored for over a decade, uh, because again, this discovery happened in 1928. But it took a very long time for it to become a realistic treatment because it still had to be synthesized in very small batches. Uh, from what I understand, some of these early experiments were very difficult as well because uh, some subjects would die because the researchers ran out of pen penicillin to give them and infection was, was not killed off entirely, which would mean that the disease would uh, have a resurgence and the patient would be unable to actually fight it off. Um, but there was one case 
1942 when meningitis was cured entirely uh, after only a couple of days of treatment. And the researchers who were British, by the way, um, Alexander Fleming was working in Oxford, I believe it was, uh, they they approached the USDA uh, to talk about creating facilities for its mass production. And um, America really was the place to go to talk about any kinds of mass industrial production just because uh, um, American capacity was just so enormous that they were able to pump out this stuff. Once they had the facilities set up, they were able to just pump out massive quantities of this stuff. Yeah, so it enters... Uh, production in 1942, but in the early days, availability was still very limited. In fact, it was so valuable that the urine of patients would often be collected so that the penicillin could be extracted and reused multiple times. That's crazy. I didn't know about that. <laughs> That's what. Yeah. 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 So, um, by this point, word about this wonder drug was starting to get out. And in, in June 1943, Dr. Mahoney, who, uh, who would be instrumental in the Guatemalan experiments and who was also one of the organizers of the Terre Haute experiments, was beginning to contemplate uh, penicillin experiments to, uh, to treat syphilis. And sh shortly thereafter, they were able to get a four-person study to actually test uh, the effectiveness of penicillin on the treatment of syphilis. And they found that it had cured uh, the infection in all of the subjects within eight days. Granted, this was a very small study, but it did lay the groundwork for showing that penicillin was indeed effective on against venereal diseases as well. Yeah, and this is like a huge change from like, you know, like getting a arsenic mercury um, eighteen month um, program, so it, it's it's quite literally like a, a a leap in in progress. Yeah, no, this is just like taking pills uh, for for a couple of days, and that's it. Like, was early procedure more complicated? Did they need to do infection? Uh, did they need to do injections or something, or was it all the oral route back in those days? So as far as I know, um, a lot of the early prophylaxis was like, you know, getting injected with like a silver protonate um, or an arsenic solution. So it's actually like more invasive. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm taking like an oral pill. And it's like, right. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So, so penicillin, it works much more quickly. It's, uh, it's very effective and it's not inconvenient to the same extent that the calomel stuff and all of those other substances were but nevertheless there was the problem that the stuff was still very expensive uh granted they were uh very rapidly expanding productive capacity by 1944 uh in the lead up to the invasion of normandy the u.s had stockpiled 2.3 million doses of penicillin already uh and it very quickly became available for civilian use in march 1945 and then by June of that same year, American uh, facilities were producing 646 billion units per year, which is just, an, just a massive exponential rise in production. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not as impressive as it sounds at first glance because, uh, because a dose was something like a million 
unit, I believe it was. So it so penicillin was still very expensive, and while it still couldn't be uh, produced at the rate that would allow for its price to be very cheap, uh, there were efforts undertaken to find lower cost treatments to to the illness, and. This introduced some really nasty incentives, which would wreak havoc on the people subjected to the Guatemalan experiments. So let's finally move on to Guatemala. Uh, why Guatemala? Um, that's, I would say that's an interesting question. Um, it was, you know, it is in the, you know, Monroe Doctrine sphere of influence country. I think that seems to have played a great role and um i would right. say like only eight years after this study begins you'll have the you know the infamous coup of Huckabar Benz. Mm-hmm. um th- at this point guatemala is ruled by like a juan jose arevalo who is kind of like a a nationalist i would, I would say like centrist with some developmentalistic characteristics like he formed like the caribbean league um he had some vaguely pro-labor pro-national politics that but also like um, you know, heavily prosecuted labor unions, and would at the same time try to play both the U.S. and um, you know the USSR um, off of each other um, right. somewhat. Um, but it, it, in many ways, like Guatemala was still dominated, you know, by a lot of American commercial um, and military interest um, at, at this point. So. From what I understand, Guatemala seemed like a great location because aside from the political factors and the friendliness of the government to American interests, uh, there would have been far less um, there would have been far less ethical scrutiny just because uh, first of all, these weren't American citizens, uh, which uh, which American citizenship didn't really stop awful things from happening to uh, within the country itself, of course, but nevertheless, uh, there was just something more viscerally shocking to the idea of medical experimentation being done on Americans rather than uh, these Guatemalans. And in fact, that brings us to the next point. Racism was a very strong factor in deciding that Guatemalans would be a good subject just because, uh, well, I mean, they constantly refer to the vast majority of the Guatemalan population as Indians uh, and these people were treated as basically idiots. Um, in fact, uh, in the uh, in the report that uh, that we read for this episode, there's a really entertaining comment made by Cutler, I believe it was, who's uh, who's complaining that basically uh, some of the subjects aren't compliant with getting their blood drawn because they're superstitious and they. Think that they're not getting enough food to make more blood, which which really blew me out of the water. Like, yeah, it's so crazy thing to say, man. These guys are starving in prison, and you're like just out there to say that. Like, yeah, yeah, man. I mean, those silly Indian superstitions. Am I right? Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of that here. Um, yeah, there's also a, lot, a degree of closeness between um, the academia and the medical. Um, you know, the, the academia and a lot of the, I would say, the researchers in Guatemala with um, the U.S. at the time, um, like particularly um, the venereal research disease um, laboratory um, worked with a Dr. Juan Funes. And Dr. Funes was like 
yo, I have a clinic in Guatemala. You guys, uh, we should, we, we can, you know, do some studies there if you want. Um, and there was also like a lot. Uh, 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 no, he didn't have a clinic. Sorry. He was just like a doctor who was there on like a fellowship and he was like, Hey, maybe you guys should check out Guatemala. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. He, he was, yeah. Yeah. He, he eventually ran a clinic in Guatemala, dude, but yeah, he, he was for, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of established connections there and I, I can't help, but, um, think that, uh, you know, the, the imperialism becoming more open um in in the 40s i, I think that definitely um, could have played a role with um you know the army planners envisioning a more aggressive involved um you know military um role especially in latin america and so like right understanding but so having you know a study um kind of anticipating how to um maintain like a army morale and health um during a devastating invasion and um also kind of expecting a lot of war crimes to be you know co continuously happening during um occupation and how to navigate um that without mass um you know without mass infections is, is something that's definitely on the back of the mind um it, it kind of reminds me of how like a lot of the yellow fever research came because of the u.s involvement in um cuba um the spanish-american war right. so it, it definitely has like that kind of imperialistic like almost settler uh mentality uh, mindset of like okay we need to you know find a way to continue doing war crimes and also not getting diseases um as terrible as that sounds right and of course this was also a major impetus for uh, the treatment of malaria because that would actually allow uh europeans to get a foothold in in the interior of africa to a much greater extent yeah i mean not just africa but also like southeast asia and south asia um hinterland uh, right, as well yes. because like you can exploit all that like a marshy terrain um that was previously kind of less directly governable um and less extractable um yeah, to your, to your subject, so. Right, yeah, so uh, just goes to show uh, the ruling ideology is going to have a very strong influence on the science of the time, so uh, that's that's generally a good thing to keep in mind. But anyway, getting back to, uh, to Guatemala, uh, what exactly was the question that the researchers were looking to study? Well, that, that, that's where, uh, that's the most... Um, I, I guess evil part of this is that you know they were they were supposed to study um, the effectiveness of different prophylactic treatments um, uh, in controlling both syphilis, gonorrhea, and chancroids, but mostly syphilis, um, including you know the older oversmefarsin versus um, penicillin. But mm -hmm. again, like that doesn't you already know that pen, by nineteen forty six. Um, they already won an award, the Lasker Prize for, you know, having found that penicillin basically cures syphilis. Um, so it, it is a very flimsy justification. And um, the, another justification for the study is trying to, you know, perfect infection or like a tr model of transmission of gonorrhea and syphilis um, person to person invasively. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, if you have to cure to those conditions then why do you need to continue to make like use human experimentation to model the transmission it's like it's very um it, it, it is not the 
for such a massive undertaking, it is, I would say, quite shoddy justification. And um, the actual science gets even more muddled and uh, the experiments just start to stop making sense and just start becoming horror stories, basically. Um, yeah. Right. And despite the fact that uh, this was very questionable, uh, just from a basic methodological standpoint, uh, leaving ethics aside, uh, in February 1946, uh, the syphilis study section uh, received the proposal for these experiments, and many of the members, including uh, I'm including the head, Dr. Joseph Moore, would be were affiliates with John Hopkins University, which is something to keep in mind. It's uh, sort of a Chekhov's gun. We'll, we'll get back to it when it's important. But um, so because of this, uh, they received their approval and uh, writing about why Guatemala in particular was such uh, an attractive destination. Dr. Mahoney wrote in July 1947, quote, it has been considered impractical to work out under post-war conditions in the United States the solution of certain phases concerned with the prevention and treatment of syphilis. These problems are largely concerned with the development of an effective prophylactic agent for both gonorrhea and syphilis and the prolonged observation of patients treated with penicillin for early syphilis. Because of the relatively fixed character of the population and because of the highly cooperative attitude of the officials, both civil and military, an experimental laboratory in Guatemala City has been established. And this laboratory was established by Dr. John Cutler, who, who was the subordinate of Mahoney, and who was sent down to Guatemala to make the necessary arrangements with the proper authorities. Uh, uh, once again, these experiments were conducted with the full knowledge and permission of the Guatemalan government, uh, because there were many promises made to uh, the to the government about uh, the fact that, you know, they're going to get top of the line medical facilities, they're going to gain expertise with how to combat uh, these really awful diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea. So it seemed like a good deal to, to the people in the government, just even leaving aside any bad faith motions by American compradors, uh, just making it easy for the for the Americans to do whatever they want. There would have been good reasons for Guatemalan officials to want these experiments to take place in their country. Yeah, like from a just a naive standpoint, it's like, oh, like we're getting funding and resources and, um, you know, well-respected, um, you know, academic academics, um, you know, in our, in our country here and, you know, cooperating with our local um, experts and we're going to develop some prophylaxis. But yeah, that's, the reality was very different. You know, um, a lot of it was driven by like top top level military contacts and um, very specific like um, yeah military and political contacts um, driving this, as opposed to like you know maybe like civilian representative organizations. You know there was no like people's um, committee of Guatemalan um, you know syphilis patients. You know who are like trying to reach out to the U.S. Right. government and. Um, you know, negotiating like a common, um, like a common agreement. It, it wasn't like that. It, it was very much like select connections that were like channeled to make this happen. And in fact, to this effect, from from what I understand, uh, uh, Dr. Cut, he set up the first set of experiments, uh, which were meant to generate goodwill. And 
And in fact, these were the ones that were comparatively above board. Uh, in, in this set of experiments, 309 soldiers received treatment. And of these, 242 were infected by the researchers themselves. Uh, but, uh, but again, uh, like uh, these 309 subjects were all given treatment. Some of them were even given penicillin, which was, uh, once again, problematic to administer from the perspective of the Americans because it was just so expensive. In fact, Cutler had written to Maloney asking to make penicillin uh, more readily available for trials uh, because this was a much more effective treatment than any of the other ones. Uh, but Mahoney, he was really dead set against this. He said, quote, entering into a too comprehensive program, which may involve the use of more of the drug than we are able to procure. And so because of that, uh, Cutler um, agreed to limit penicillin use and very, very few people in Guatemala would receive that. Yeah, there, there is definitely like a, like a racial and um, you know, just like a bigotry aspect of this where like, you know, it's like, let's not, they basically don't view like a lot of the subjects as equal, you know, um, or respectable. And they're just trying to, and it's not even methodologically sound. Like, why are you not, you know, using penicillin when it's the state of the line treatment? Um, there's just like no reason not to. Um, if you want to compare it to the older treatment, like why don't you do like a larger, like if you want to do a larger penicillin prophylaxis study, then why don't you actually give people pen penicillin and see what happens and record it in detail? But I don't know. It's just it's just again it's just uh it's almost like an exercise in egotism and uh, like an obsession with spreading plague, um rather than actually like finding anything out or curing something or you know making making something mean of course uh so let's get into the experiments right now and see what they actually consisted of um again many different groups would be subjected to these experiments most of them without their knowledge or uh consent really for what was happening to them uh, they were, in fact, just under the impression that it was routine medical checkups, most of them. Um, but there was there was some really shocking stuff going on. Can you uh, talk about the different cohorts of subjects? Yeah, so there were like roughly seven groups exposed to three pathogenic diseases. Um, so it was sex workers, soldiers, prisoners, orphans leprosy patients, psychiatric patients, and as we mentioned before, a couple of U.S. servicemen as well and um, some Guatemalan servicemen. Um, so gonorrhea, again, it's like a urethral, like ocular and rectal infection, and it's caused by gram-negative bacteria. Chancroids are, um, they're like skin abrasions, and they're caused, again, gram-negative um, hemophilus um, infection. And syphilis um, is a um, tryponema, Pilidum is it's 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 a spiral sheet type of bacteria, so it's like a spiral shaped. Um, and yeah, so these are the three main um, STDs that were like testing on. Um, and yeah, so they were uh, doing like for gonorrhea, they were doing like urethral, ocular, and rectal administration. Chancroids, they were like um, using like skin and back abrasions, and syphilis, they were. Um, doing some very, very invasive procedures like orally ingesting syphilis, um, abrasive penile um, injection, as well as um, cisternal punctures, which is where they would literally like 
inject syphilis into the cerebrospinal fluid at the cisterna magna, like right underneath the cerebellum. Um, and you do that through the back of the skull um, in a, and just drilling holes in through their heads, basically in, in, injecting syphilis directly to the brain, um, it, which is like, there's really no point in doing that. Like, because it's, it's kind of like, you, you know, what's going to happen. Like, there's no scientific reason to do that really, because you already know, have hundreds of years of documentation of what neurosyphilis is. So um, yeah, it, it does, just doesn't make sense. Like why anyone would want to do that or need to do that even um, as like, and it's questionable how sterile the environments were when they were doing this. So it just doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah. They were reusing needles regularly yeah. from what I've read. So it's like, it's like, it just doesn't make sense why they were doing, because like, even from a scientific standpoint, like, if you, if you, if you want to look at, if you want to see, like, if a cisternal puncture, for whatever reason, um, is, get will instantly cause like neurosyphilis um then you, you would need a sterile environment to make sure to roll out other contaminants but if you're like reusing needles you're like you know it's it's not methodologically sound at all um which is the least of the problems here but there's like no excuse at any level of what's going on here and it just goes completely off the rails very quickly yeah so as we mentioned uh previously prisoners were one of the larger cohorts uh there were, uh, I mean, it seems like for, for whatever reason, there was a really high false positive rate because uh, uh, they noticed that there were a lot of people in Guatemala who were testing positive for, for syphilis, but who were nevertheless not really expressing symptoms. Uh, why was that? Um, I think there could have definitely been contamination. Also, they were using a less accurate um, serology test or antibody test. They were using cardiolipin over the Kahn and Mazzini test, which were way more accurate at the time. So they're not even using like cutting edge, um, like diagnostic tools. So it, it, it's just, yeah. And then they just blame like, oh, these, these are like different people. So we're not used to like testing them because they're like, oh, they're more Indian. So it's like, it, it's, it's just so strange. Or they'll like um, do it. Or I remember like one of them would cite it to like environmental, like, you know, the Aristotelian, like, oh, like the cold makes you hardy or in the, like the warmth makes you lazy. Like they were like chalk it up to like environmental or climatic differences that um, like different racial categories would experience um, as opposed to like, oh, like what if we use a more accurate test or what if we don't contaminate our samples or something, you know? Yeah, and this was really the most shocking thing about all of this to me, just how much they were looking to cut corners to save costs when, in fact, these were really well-funded projects that really had no need to even try to, you know, reuse needles and things of that nature. Like, why? Why were they doing this? I, I honestly, a lot of it does feel like grifting. Like, it feels like Theranos. Um, you know, they're just eating all these, like, you know, um, big contracts and big grants and, um, just uh, cashing in the checks and, um, you know, a lot of people get rewarded from it and experience career progression. Um, so I think there's a lot of careerism and just extreme, like, disdain for other people and just just, just extreme lack of ethics and compassion um, or even, like, basic human standards. Um, and I, I think that's the biggest motivation that I can see here. So were they just, like, literally pocketing the money that was going to them I'm not sure if they were doing that as much as they were just like 
writing off the fact that they were getting these like you know government positions and um getting the grants and you know getting to you know eventually cash in a pension you know <laughs> um it, it really is like extremely banal nine to five evil shit <laughs> yeah. yeah uh yeah okay so there were the prisoners as i mentioned uh but that's uh really just the tip of the icebergs the most appalling cohort were uh psychiatric patients uh which again this was when the Terre Haute experiments were being conceived and they were looking for ideas for where such experiments could take place they uh, someone initially suggested mental asylums, but that was almost immediately scrapped just because it was clear to everyone that, first of all, these people cannot give consent categorically. And second of all, that they're just not fit to understand what was being done to them. But all such considerations went out the window the moment uh, they crossed the, the border. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you, you hear a lot about, like, um, the progressive era, I guess the 60s and 1860s, 1870s progressive era, like, or I guess earlier than that, you know, with Dorothea Dix, you know, like all the great reformers. Right. Um, like, oh, like we need compassionate schooling and um, like mental health systems. And you hear like the progressives of the 20s and stuff. And you, you just you just see this and it's like completely um, when it comes to a different country, you know, when it comes to a basically a, a colony in progress you know it's just completely thrown out the window um and they're doing lumbar punctures on kids on uh, 49 out of you know the 500 kids they studied um and of the 89 kids who got a positive serology reaction um only five, 55 actually got to see a doctor and get treatment so it's like they're just literally going to orphanages and like do, doing spinal taps on kids so it's like why just there's just no reason to be doing that really um like because you know yeah i mean you can probably diagnose neurosyphilis without a spinal sample um at, at that point i mean if, if they're getting like neurosyphilis you know it's like you don't need a you don't need a spinal tap i mean you can tell from a lot of the clinical data that you could get um but it's 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 just it's really horrible and, and the treatment of the psychiatric psychiatric patients is Definitely, I would say, um, and, and the sex workers is definitely some of the most like horrifying. Um, they did hundreds of cisternal punctures and lumbar punctures on the 642 psychiatric patients. And um, none of a lot of the treatments for the psychiatric patients was not documented. But um, there were 250 syphilis positive patients um, all the way till 1953 um, of the psychiatric cohort. So, you know, they were like injecting people with syphilis left and right and, um, you know, like just digging into their schools and stuff. So it's just very, very insane stuff. Right. And and speaking of psychiatric patients, uh, one of the uh, one of the examples included in ethically impossible just dropped my jaw. I'm just going to quote this directly just because I I don't have it in me to try to reword this, but quote, Bertha was a female patient at, in the psychiatric hospital. Her age and the illness that brought her to the hospital are unknown. In February 1948, Bertha was injected into her left arm with syphilis. A month later, she developed scabies, an, an itchy skin condition caused by a mite. Several weeks, several weeks later, lead investigator Dr. John Cutler noticed that she had also developed red bumps where she 
they had injected her arm. Lesions on her arms and legs and her skin was beginning to waste away from her body. Berto was not treated for syphilis until three months after her injection. Soon after, on August 23rd, Dr. Cutler wrote that Berta appeared as if she was going to die, but he did not specify why. That same day, he put gonorrheal pus from another male uh, subject into both of Berta's eyes, as well as into her urethra and rectum. He also reinfected her with syphilis. Several days later, Berta's eyes were filled with pus from the gonorrhea, and she was bleeding from her urethra. On August 27th, Berta died. I'm just... I'm like, I'm just honestly speechless. I just don't understand how like one can engage in that level of sadism. Like this is very clearly like of no medical use to anyone. How could anyone like do this to another person? Yeah, it, it's it's pretty heartbreaking, and it's one of the you know many many horror stories um we can't get into all of them um that were involved here but it's just so sad that a lot of people haven't recognized it and it was like kind of it's relatively unknown for um you know most people um and just how widespread and just how many people were involved um mostly most soldiers were luckier because a lot of them got treatment but psychiatric patients only 237 of them received treatment and you know not all of it was even like good treatment um and you know for the licensed sex workers at the time guatemala had a you know a licensing systems um for sex workers um at least four were intentionally exposed and whether they were paid or not is unsure um and four were naturally infected so they were basically the doctors would watch as they would um you know get you know naturally infected by um known carriers and um there's no record whether they were paid or not um you know like once they were recruited for the study um and basically the guatemalan law required that you know uh, prostitutes um licensed prostitutes be of age and um at least one of the participants was underage um and dr cutler was like taking extremely detailed notes on you know um very specific um like observations he was making as he was like watching these studies um and it's recorded that at least one worker had contact with eight soldiers in 71 minutes only five percent transmission oh my god in normal exposure um and notes don't even show compensation to all the workers and artificial inoculation um with prophylaxis um w was later eventually perfected with successful infection rates all the way up to 94%. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it was very, very, it's very voyeuristic and like, you can't even like, this is like beyond like a, like a, like a horror story. Like you can't make this up. It's like stranger than fiction really. Um, just how terrible this is. Um, because there are all plenty of people who are infected with gonorrhea you can find and like treat and see which treatments work better or um yeah and there's it's, there's already been like um multiple studies at this point you know like on how gonorrhea spreads um you know you don't need to expose like underage people to you know traffic underage people for this uh, purpose it's it's pretty insane um and it's kind of insane that he got in zero trouble despite you know involving an underage um, sex worker um, trafficked into this experiment. So pretty insane stuff. 
Right. It just seems to me that the only thing of any kind of medical value that anyone got out of this was figuring out how to actually consistently infect people with gonorrhea, uh, which just, which again, was what they weren't able to figure out in Terre Haute. But, but for some reason here, they were just obsessed with this idea. Uh, uh, the report ethically impossible it talks about uh it talks in great length uh about all of the different methods that they were trying to actually get people infected and i don't know i i haven't really had time to look at this from the perspective of biological warfare or something like that for example but it does seem to me like an unstated thing throughout the report uh which again, I have issues with the report that we'll get back to towards the end of the episode. It does seem like it just doesn't consider that maybe this had like an element of biological warfare planning into it, put into it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like it literally most of the, I guess, if you can even call them methodological approaches, like all of them are literally related to making spread as efficient and as controlled as possible so it's like i mean you can you can make up your own mind about that it, it's just kind of insane um because like you know the rest of the world and most people you know would be concerned about like okay like how do we prevent new transmission which you can try different prophylactic approaches i mean high risk populations and see which ones work you don't you know you don't have to like actually like see, uh you know cause transmission um in isolation and observe it and do it with that much detail you can just like focus on prevention um you know and and you know treatment right. but it, it's it's a very um it is a i mean it is a military driven um experiment uh, it, it is driven by an imperial war machine so of course you're going to see that reflected in the characteristics and the ideology and the methodology of the research so it's just like that you know like science alone is not like unideological you know it, it is a product of ideology right. of you know whoever is funding supporting and you know making it happen so yeah so um these experiments would continue for many years as i mentioned previously uh the official end to uh to these experiments happened in december 1948 when they ran out of funding uh, but they did keep some people on the ground who continued to do some of this work and to collect samples for a while. Um, did why was the experiment discontinued? First of all, um, I really don't know. I I feel like there probably had to have been some type of backlash internally, and um, and it really wasn't producing any like new information i feel um that was like valuable um i i think those were two um key factors i know that other people within the study were like pretty apprehensive toward cutler even if they were still you know doing evil terrible shit um like cutler was something like a freak to them um eventually so yeah which is really saying something um and, uh, and a lot of the, like, we didn't get into this year, but, like, a lot of the details on how they perfected, yeah. like, syphilis transmission and um, gonorrhea transmission, it was, like, extremely invasive, like, um, like, intraurethral injections, you know, like, 
um, of gonorrhea into someone's like uh, yeah like using like a very sharp tools and stuff. So you know they were they were like up to some very very sick. Yeah, stuff. and again, most of the pe- of the people involved didn't even know what was being done to them. Yeah, like for gonorrhea, they would call it deep inoculation, where like um, they would like basically you know it is what it sounds like. They would go into the urethra um, with like a tool. Um, to make sure and uh, that you know, the infection happened. It, this, it was extremely painful with scarification was what they called the procedure of choice. Um, that was like basically um, approached like a 90% inoculation rate. Um, so that just goes to show how terrible, you know, this is uh, the procedures were. Um, you can read up on the details on your own. But um, yeah, and for the syphilis exposure, like 688 patients... Of them, only 388 were treated. Um, and they were doing, like, cross-species syphilis studies, too, kind of. They were doing rabbit-derived syphilis and um, human-derived wounds, um, strains, and, like, comparing them. 446 psychiatric patients were involved in the intentional syphilis exposure experiments, of whom only 294 got some treatment. Um, there is some... Uh, there, there is, like, mention that um, there was some intentional exposure of homosexual men to study the spread but later documents say that didn't happen despite there is some evidence in other documents um that contradicts that saying that it did happen so you know it, it, it was literally doing like i mean this is the era of you know the coming coming out of the you know all the big war crimes hearings you know this is the era after nuremberg so you know these guys are just really really insane um for just yeah this is some mangala shit frankly yeah this is like not like even even by the standards of the time there's a lot of progressive stuff going around the world i know like the soviet union banned lobotomies um like a a lot of like like socialist projects were like taking off with like universal healthcare um approaches and stuff and you just have these guys just like okay what if i can spread gonorrhea like by like basically stabbing someone um in, in in a very sensitive area it's like just insane logic um i think I like I'm done for today. I I don't have it in me to continue to talk about the like um t- uh, to uh, to talk about the medical aspects of this. It's just too much for me. Um let's move forward to uh the official acknowledgement by the US government of what happened and the issuing of this report. Once again, a large, um, a very large part of the information in this episode is derived from a report called Ethically Impossible, STD Research in Guatemala from 1946 to 1948, which was issued in September 2011. And I have a lot of issues with this report, but let's talk about how it came about. Um. Yeah, so like around the Obama administration, there is like, I guess some awareness um, that that this happened, and they like assemble um, some couple of secretaries and cabinet members to um, like document what happened, and and it is kind of like an exculpatory. What what is I w- I would say it's like disclosure as an exculpatory act in a way, like oh, like acknowledgement itself as exculpatory, but it's like. No, that just means you acknowledged it. Like it doesn't doesn't mean you're materially changing any of the details. Right. Um, 
it, it, it's just so yeah it, it's just it just falls short of the horrors that frankly happened um right so you have the secretary of state um, obama and um secretary of health and human services formally apologized to guatemala um the guatemalan president um at the time alvaro colom um you know condemns it as a crime against humanity you know the nih director you know calls it a dark chapter in the history of medicine um and the thing is despite you know you acknowledge it it was not even like the last big mass human experimentation performed you know the the, the imperial war machine um the, the research aspect of it um, you know, just goes domestic, and you have yeah. prison populations in Holmesburg and Philadelphia for decades. Um, you know, um, under Dr. Kligman of UPenn, you know, they get many experiments performed on them. And um, there's a great book about um, you know, well, no, it's not great. It's it's a, it's a good, well-researched book, but it's a very dark. Um, and it's called Acres of Skin, um, and it is directly from his quote on what he felt when he first saw the prisoners, um, that he was going to experiment on for the first time. All I saw before me were acres of skin. It was like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. And until 2021, the Department of Dermatology at UPenn was named after um, Dr. Kligman. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, as you mentioned, like, a huge issue with the report is that it's basically meant to be exculpatory. There's a very large emphasis placed on Cutler himself, which granted he was clearly a, a, a sadist who had no regard for human life. But nevertheless, it feels like he is just a very convenient scapegoat to try to pin all of this on just because, uh, I mean, first of all, he was also, he would later also be involved with the Tuskegee experiments. Once again, this was after the invention of penicillin and after these people could have been cured, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, they were not given any treatment until 1972. Um, so Cutler, he's sort of like a really great scapegoat, for lack of a better word, just because you can see his uh, grubby little fingerprints over all of these different medical atrocities. So it's very easy to you know, do the good liberal thing of like acknowledging the wrongs of the past and looking at the figure of this one unscrupulous doctor himself rather than the framework under which it was all done and the ways in, I mean, which there was complicity going all the way up about what exactly was being done to these people. But more importantly, it's just like, like you can... Like, like, basically, Obama loved to do this kind of stuff, like, right, just um, apologizing for various historical wrongs, because uh, his presidency was really positioned as like the beginning of a new type of America, sort of post-racial America, where uh, the crimes of the past would be examined and righted. And of course, it's just like... Um, it's hollow. It's hollow. Yeah, I mean... Like, again, there's the scapegoating aspect, the fact that it's all fundamentally very hollow because this was an apology without any kind of real compensation to to the victims or a deeper examination of why what happened did happen. It was like, it's just, uh, once again, just pinning the sins of the imperial enterprise on this one particularly evil man. 
Yeah, it's just it's just one mad scientist, you know, not the entire like machinery of bureaucrats who were pushing for this to happen and we're happy that this happened, you know. It's like <laughs> it's just so absurd. Um that's a proposition. <laughs> yeah, and, and so um again, the report it does seem to not really consider many of the questions that we brought up today. Like like frankly, I'm just shocked by the lack of consideration of the uh, bioweapon implications of this from something that's supposed to be a consideration of the wrongs of the past. In fact, let me just read from the beginning of the of the letter that was written by uh, by uh, members of the commission who put this together, just because I think it's so revealing. Uh, quote. In response to your request of November 24, 2010, the Commission oversaw a fact-finding investigation into the specifics of the U.S. Public Health Service-led studies in Guatemala involving the intentional exposure and infection of vulnerable populations. It is the Commission's firm belief that many of the actions undertaken in Guatemala were especially egregious moral wrongs because many of the individuals involved held positions of public institutional responsibility. Moving forward, a little bit. Uh, in the preface, we in the preface to the report, we read that quote: "In the spirit of openness and freedom of inquiry needed to restore trust and repair damage created by these revelations, the secretaries indicated that the U.S. government would launch an independent inquiry into the events." Here's one that really made my eye, my ears shoot up. Quote, the history of U.S.-supported experimentation undertaken to advance medical knowledge and protect national security is complex with evolving ethical standards and norms. Nonetheless, the experiments in Guatemala starkly revealed that despite awareness of the part of the government officials and independent medical experts of then-existing basic ethical standards to protect against using individuals as, as mere means to serve science and government ends, these standards were violated. Yeah, what, like, what more is there to say? They just admit that this was part of the whole national security apparatus uh, without really considering what that means in practice. Yeah, I mean, another thing is like a lot of the, you know, like, the you know, the Guatemalan connections, you know, they end up getting massive career hikes from this. Um, oh, yes. Louis Galich becomes a presidential contender. Um, Carlos Salvado, who was one of the... Carlos Salvador was one of the um, liaisons for the army, I think. Um, he becomes a, um, a fellow. He gets a fellowship in the U.S. Um, I don't, Dr. Mahoney was already an extremely well-established researcher, and this certainly didn't hurt his like long-term career. Um, yeah, no, Carlos Salvador was the psychiatry liaison. So he was one of the guys who was, you know, helping run the, all the, mm -hmm. probably some of the worst experiments. And, you know, he got hired as a fellow, you know. He, he becomes a well-established doctor in the U.S. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just it's just kind of kind of crazy that you have, like, all these so much, like, social mobility from just doing some of the most horrible things possible. Um, they're just kind of rewarded for it, and it's just no one cares. Um, Cutler didn't face any, like, real consequences for this at all. And um, there were lawsuits... Um, made towards um certain institutions that were um involved in the or okay I, i'm gonna have to say this properly there were certain lawsuits made against certain institutions 
um, relating to, you know, the Guatemala syphilis study. You can look those up, you know, um, the Manuel Gudiel Garcia versus Kathleen Sibelius in 2011, and the estate of Arturo Giron Alvarez um, at Al versus the John Hopkins at Al 2015. Um, this one had a 774 plaintiffs against JHU, Bristol Myers Squibb, and the Rockefeller Foundation as well. Um, and it, like a lot of these cases were, you know, they're clearly outlined to generate some sort of awareness and like, like acknowledgement, you know, that, you know, people were harmed. Um, and to this day, you can go to look up JHU Guatemala syphilis and it will on Google and it will take you to a website um, of the 2015 John Hopkins media statement that you can read and um, you, you can decide. Um, yeah, you can you can read that on your own and, um, you know, decide on the disclaimer. Um, but yeah, clearly there was a, every single like, like facet of this case is like just ridden with collaboration from just all manners of national security, um, academic, academia, um, bureaucracy, politics, um, compradors, just like a right wing international, um, just to do the most insane shit possible. Um, and I, I think you can make comparisons to this as this to other, you know, um, Cold War era projects as well that would come later on, um, you know, relating to regime change or um, yeah, political changes too. So it's very interesting um, just seeing the kind of responses this day from like, you know, top established academic institutions, um, you know, who are accused in certain lawsuits. So again, you know, this is not the, this is not my opinion or I'm not implying anything um, about complicity in anything. Um, nor hopefully nor the podcast but just 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 this is just this is just the facts that this case happened and there is a disclaimer you can go and read on your own just to go over some numbers once again uh during the course of the experiments 83 patients are recorded to have died uh but this is i feel a very um not a great number to go by just because first of all uh the notes taken from these experiments often weren't very reliable from what ethically impossible uh, makes it sound like and second of all just this is only the death toll during the experiments themselves we have no way of knowing how many people uh, who had been intentionally exposed to these d diseases would ultimately die of the fact that they were sick with these uh, illnesses, which they did not have in the first place um, until researchers started to inject them. Do we have some idea of uh, how many people exactly would have died maybe from a more Guatemalan perspective? Yeah. I'm sure the Guatemalan government has issued reports to this uh, on these events as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's difficult to say like exact death count because it also went on for like seven, eight years. And, um, like, even if a person was infected with gonorrhea, um, you know, like, and, and they got, like, severe, they got a severe, you know, long-term injury, then, you know, or, like, they got syphilis and, you know, decades later, they developed neurosyphilis. Um, like, some, a lot of the psychiatric patients, like, by 1953, 250, like, 250 of them st were, like, still testing positive for syphilis, so it's, like, pretty hard to say like how many people had long-term consequences even if they were alive um from like the experiments or if they've experienced recurring pain because of scarification and stuff um so it, it it's just very difficult to say um like what would happen in the long run um 
like the amount of suffering that they endured, even if they somehow, you know, were able to survive. Um, and the treatments a lot of people were given were still like arsenic and mercury. So it's like, you know, you're not getting, you're going to get side effects from those two. So it's not, it's, def it's definitely very subpar treatment. And of course, this didn't only touch the direct participants in the study. Some people, no doubt, went on to infect uh, people because they were unaware that they were infected in the first place. Uh, in the more horrific cases, uh, many children would have been born with congenital syphilis, which is something that happens if, uh, if the mother is infected during the pregnancy. And, and because it's a neurological disease, this means that the children born as a result, uh, it means that these children are often born with horrific birth defects. Yeah, and the thing with gonorrhea is um, congenital gonorrhea is terrible because it's, um, you know, it, it can cause blindness. And um, in some parts of the world, um, for many years, like it's one of the leading causes of congenital blindness is gonorrhea. And it's completely preventable. And, um, you know, you can completely just like treat it. Um, but we don't know how many people, um, you know, how many kids were blind because of this. You know, it's 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 hard to tell just the sheer impact of this. And no matter like no, no feeble acknowledgement or um like apology can really match up to the like level of horror that was experienced here um yeah like we, we highly recommend that you guys just go and read the like disclaimers and the ethically impossible um investigation yourself and you know um kind of you know, discuss these questions with within yourself, and I think it's good more people become aware of just how, how what what happened and why it happened and other stuff that like like this that kept happening right. afterwards. So, and all right, Krebs, thank you so much for coming on for this episode and helping helping me to talk about this and bringing some of your own expertise uh, to this episode. Hopefully, our listeners will find this to be. Uh, a very informative, if difficult, listen. Uh, do you have any closing remarks or some anything you'd like to plug? Um, no. Um, I think uh, I'm. Yeah, I don't have anything to plug or any closing remarks other than um, yeah, just just uh, just read and uh, yeah. That's yeah. It. All right. Well, that's it for today, guys. Uh, thank you for listening and take care. Goodbye.